Well, welcome to the City Church. My name is Clayton Walker. I'm the pastor here. Uh, if we've never met, never been here before, I want to welcome those of you watching online uh, at one of our Hope City locations. We are pumped you're joining us right now as well. Okay, all right, class. Get out your notebooks and your pencils because we're going to do some long division today, all right? Got a lot to teach you. I'm just kidding. I don't know. I don't, I don't. You're, you might be like, wait, if that's what we're doing today, I'm out. Like I'm out right now. Uh, wrong place for that, right? Wrong people for that. We're not students in school. Uh, we're not at school. So wrong place and wrong people. And if you thought that when I said that, you would be correct. And not only that, I'm the wrong person to do that, right? I mean, I don't know this new math, this new long division and multi. I couldn't even tell you how to add with this new math that's somehow new and better, even though it takes you hours longer to do than the old, old ways. And if you don't have kids, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but there's a new math, go figure, right? And so I would be not even the right person to teach you the new way to do long division and multiplication and all those kinds of things. But if you thought, hey, if we're gonna talk about long division, that would be the wrong audience and it would be the wrong place, the wrong setting, and you would be right. And that happens a lot of times when we interpret the scripture. Like we will interpret verses and not understand who the audience is or the setting, like where it was written. And those two things are a major part of the context of scripture. Who is this being written to, the audience? And where is this being written? Like what's the, where's the setting? What's the location of what's being written? You see, we're in a series called Twisted and we're finishing it up today. And in this series, we are taking some of the most commonly misinterpreted and misquoted verses that we have twisted and we're looking at what they really mean. We are untwisting these misquoted and misinterpreted verses. And so today, I promise you, you're probably going to be surprised, shocked, uh, that you've maybe had these verses misinterpreted. Now, the verses that we're looking at today are probably the most quoted verses and like all of the church, right? I mean, Jeremiah 29, 11 and Psalm 23. Now, here's what I wanna tell you, just as before we get started, all right? This could be difficult because today could challenge your thinking on some of the most popular verses the church has ever known, because my bet is, is one of those verses is on a piece of artwork in your kitchen or in your bathroom or in your bedroom or on a coffee mug or somewhere at your office or your workplace or your home or whatever. My, my guess is if you've grown up in church, this is the one of the most dearly loved and beloved verses, both of them, that you've ever had in your life and you hold on to them and you should. And here's why you should, because they are better than you ever could have possibly imagined. Like I'm gonna challenge your thinking today on them, I promise you. You're gonna think about them in a different way. But different doesn't always mean worse. And today you're going to see, I promise you, different is actually a whole lot better, right? So let's look at these two Verses Jeremiah 29, 11 and Psalm 23. Jeremiah 29, 11 is gonna point out the audience and why it's important to know the audience. Psalm 23 is going to point out why it's important to know the setting or the place when we're talking about context and when we do interpretation of the scripture. So let's go. Jeremiah 29, 
Verse 11 says this, as if I needed to show it to you, because if you've grown up in church, you probably could quote it, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Man, great news, right? It's amazing. I promise you can be so much better than you ever imagined. All right, let's go to Psalm 23. Next, Psalm 23 says this, the Lord is my shepherd, David says, I lack nothing. Man, that sounds amazing, doesn't it? And it is. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Amen, David. Amen, Jeremiah. Those sound amazing and they are, but I promise you, they're so much better than you could have ever possibly imagine. So if you hear those two verses, you might be thinking now, man, give me all the prospering and all the green pastures I can possibly handle God. Amen. I claim that in Jesus name. Some of you are like, yes, yes, Lord, prosper me green pastures. I want the whole package. I want all the prospering pastures I can get. Well, let me ask you this. Do we ever interpret scripture by just taking one verse out of its context and assuming we know what it means or just taking it at face value. No, no, no. We always interpret scripture in context. We have to, or we get it wrong. We have to go to the context and look at what are these verses actually saying? And so here's what we've said. Here's how we interpret scripture in the right way. First of all, we interpret scripture with prayer. We have to pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Paul said this about the scripture. These are spiritually, these are spiritual things and they are discerned spiritually. In other words, they're understood spiritually. So we have to pray. We have to ask God, God, help me to understand your word, to know what it's saying and to apply it to my life. Next, we interpret scripture in context, context, context. We say it three times, once for emphasis, so we don't forget. And secondly, to tell us that we interpret it in the immediate context, like what's the verse saying, like that one verse and what do the words mean? We zoom out a little bit into a broader context, like what's that passage or chapter or book of the Bible saying? And then finally we zoom out a little bit further and we say, what what is the whole of scripture saying about this topic or about this verse that I'm reading? Next, we interpret scripture with scripture. So we use a lot of verses to help us interpret this one verse that we're reading or trying to understand. We use the easy to understand verses to help us understand and interpret the harder to understand verses. We use the clear to help us interpret the unclear. We use the direct to help us interpret the not so direct or the indirect. So we always use scripture to interpret other scripture. And then finally, we interpret scripture through Jesus. Jesus said all the law and the prophets and the Psalms, it's all about him. He said it at least three times that all of the scripture points to him and is about him. And so to get it right, we've got to interpret the scripture through the life and ministry of Jesus. We look at the scripture that we're looking at through the filter or through the lens of Jesus himself. So let's get started. First, we got Jeremiah 29, 11. But before we do that, we need to pray and ask God to speak to us. So would you pray with me? God, we pray right now through your word, you would speak to us. You would help us to understand it. God, it would not just make sense in our minds, but our hearts would be moved by it. God, our hearts would be convicted and challenged or or comforted, God, by your word. So move us, God, by your spirit from the inside out in our hearts. Capture our hearts, not just our minds today. 
capture our hearts by your word and that it would burn in us. And then God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to live these words out and to apply them to our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. This one is going to be hard for a lot of us because we typically interpret this verse through a Western or American point of view, right? I mean, we typically do that with anything we read, but we just need to be honest and say, we all come to the scripture with a bias. And because we've grown up in this country, if you have, then you interpret it from a Western or American, American point of view or with an American bias. We, we, we just do that. We have to be honest about that and realize that. And so Jeremiah 29, 11 is interesting because in verse one, it actually starts out in Jeremiah 29, telling us who this verse and these verses in Jeremiah chapter 29 are written to. It's very clear who the audience is. So if you got a Bible, you can look. If you don't, follow along with us on the app. The verses and the points and everything are there for you to fill in the blank with. But Jeremiah 29 verse 1 says this. This letter is written from Jeremiah to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the exiles. Now, what's, what's he talking about here? Well, first of all, Jeremiah is writing to the nation of Israel. They are in captivity to Babylon. And so they have been exiled from their country. Jerusalem's been destroyed and, and they've been exiled to Babylon now under King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Jeremiah is writing to the exiles and he's writing to the elders, the leaders of the exile. So here's the first thing you've got to understand about Jeremiah 29, 11. It's the audience. It's not you. This is not written to you. You are not Israel. We are the church. We are Gentiles. And so this verse is not directly for you. We can learn indirectly things about God and the nature and the character of God, but this verse is not written to you. It's written to the nation of Israel. You see, this is why audience is important because in this instance and many others like it, when you begin to replace or put yourself or read yourself into verses, specifically in the Old Testament, that are written to, written to the nation of Israel, you may not realize this or not, but you are by default operating in what's called replacement theology, which says this, that the church has replaced Israel in regards to the plan and purposes of God. And I believe that is wrong. I think that's heresy. The church has not replaced Israel. We've been grafted in, Paul would say, into this olive tree that represents the nation. of. We've been grafted into this tree, but as the church, we don't replace Israel. We're grafted into the people of God. And so together we are the people of God, but there are two groups in the people of God. There is Israel and then there is the church. And we are not Israel. That would be replacing Israel. Israel with the church. And so when you read this verse and you say, that's written to me, whether you realize it or not, you're engaging in replacement theology, saying that things that were written to the nation of Israel apply to me as a Gentile, and they don't. We can learn things about God through the Old Covenant and the Old Testament and the nature of God and the way he relates to his people, but this specifically 
Jeremiah 29 verse one is very specifically written to the nation of Israel, specifically to the exiles in Babylon and to their leaders. So this isn't written to you. It's kind of like Night at the Roxbury, right? If you grew up in the 90s, uh, you, you maybe saw this movie and the guys go in and they're bobbing their heads and they go into these clubs and, and girl, they think girls are talking to them. Like, you're talking to me? You're talking to him? You're talking to me? And then the girl's like, no, I'm not talking to either one of you, right? I'm talking to someone else. See, that's what's important to get the audience correct. Now, let's look at verse 11. Jeremiah 29, 11, the popular verse, okay? First of all, in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, when God says through the prophet Jeremiah, his plans, his Hebrew, this is literally thoughts. So God says, first of all, my thoughts next to prosper you in Hebrew is literally peace. And then when we look at to give you a future, it's literally an end outcome or an end result. So, so here's what Jeremiah 29, 11 is literally saying, like in Hebrew, it's saying, I've got thoughts of peace for you as the end outcome, as the end result. Now you might be thinking, why is God saying to Israel that I've got thoughts of peace for you. Was God not at peace with the nation of Israel in this moment? Was, was Israel, uh, were, were the Jews, were they not at peace with God at this moment? And the answer to that question is, is no, no, they're not. They're in captivity. They're, they're in captivity. They're in exile. They've been forced from Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been destroyed. You see, when you zoom out and you look at the whole book of Jeremiah, watch what Jeremiah 20, 21 verse 10 says. God says, I have determined to do this city harm and not good. Oh, wait a second, God. You said in Jeremiah 29 verse 11, I've got good plans for you not to harm you. But in Jeremiah 21 verse 10, you're saying I've determined to do this city harm and not good. You see what God was prophesying through the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel was that, listen, there's a punishment coming for your sin and rebellion and idolatry. You've been committing adultery on me. And I've had patience with you over and over and over again, but now there is a punishment coming and Babylon is coming to wipe you out and destroy you and to take you, the remnant, into exile. And so God says in chapter 21, I've actually determined to do harm to you. There's a punishment coming. Jeremiah 23, verse 16, the false prophets begin prophesying that that's not true. No, 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 no. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to Jeremiah. God doesn't want to harm you. God's not going to punish you. God's not angry at you for your sin. And the false prophets begin to prophesy hope. But it was a false prophecy. And Jeremiah would prophesy against them saying, no, 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 no. There's a coming destruction. Jeremiah chapter 25, Jeremiah prophesies 70 years of captivity. Jeremiah 26, because of these prophecies, because of all this bad news from Jeremiah, they arrest Jeremiah. They're beating him and he is threatened with death because of his prophecies. Jeremiah chapter 28, the false prophet Hananiah begins to false falsely prophesy that there's going to be two years of captivity and not 70 years of captivity to which Jeremiah responds, man, I really hope that's true. 
Like that would be awesome. That's not what God's been telling me. God's been saying destruction is coming and 70 years of captivity. But man, I really hope that's true. And Jeremiah walks away and God tells Jeremiah, nope, go back and prophesy against Hananiah and tell him he's going to be dead this year. Two months later, Hananiah dies because he was prophesying falsely hope and that there was not going to be a captivity and that this captivity would last, if it really did come, it would only last a couple of years and not the 70 years that Jeremiah said. So at first, here's what one commentator said about Jeremiah, the book. At first, the Jews are laughing at God's threats confident of a speedily return. Then when cast down from that confidence, they sank an inconsolable despondency. I mean, obviously, right? The guy that's prophesying hope and peace and two years of captivity has just died because he's made a false prophecy. God killed him. So they sank into inconsolable despondency and they could not conceive how deliverance could come. This is the context and the buildup to Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Verse 14, God says this in Jeremiah 29, I will bring you back from captivity. Well, like when the 70 years are have completed, I'm going to bring you back from captivity. I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. And then God says this, I will rebuild you. Maybe that helps you understand what Jeremiah is saying in verse 11. I have thoughts of peace for you as the end result, as the end outcome. My anger and my punishment are going to relent because I have thoughts of peace with you as the end goal and as the end result. So here's what Jeremiah 29, 11 is really saying. And it's so much better than you ever could have possibly imagined is that there is a peace after the punishment. There's a peace that's going to come after the punishment. I have thoughts of peace for you as the end result, as the end outcome. You're going into captivity. It's going to be 70 years. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. That is going to happen. There will be punishment for your sin. There is a coming destruction, but I've got thoughts of peace for you as the end result, as the outcome of all of this, there will be peace. Christian, I hope that brings to mind Isaiah chapter 53, which says this, It was his punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. There is a peace after the punishment. And the New Testament, the new covenant confirms this. In Romans chapter five, Paul says it like this. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Well, well, how did Jesus accomplish peace for us? Well, first of all, Jesus said, I didn't come to save you. I mean, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. Why? Because you stand condemned already before God. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you because you already stand condemned before God. You see, the Bible says this, from the moment that you are born, you are born into sin 
Paul would say it like this in Ephesians chapter two, by your very nature, objects of the wrath of God. So you are not friends with God. You are enemies with God, Paul says in Romans five. You're enemies of God. And if you were to die in your sin, you would experience the just wrath for your sin because you have sinned against and offended an infinitely holy, righteous, and eternal, all-powerful God. You have infinitely offended him. And there is wrath for sin. When you break God's law, you pay God's fine. And so you are guilty of your sin. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you because you stand condemned. You're guilty and you need to be saved. And so first John says this about Jesus. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. First John one, literally atoning sacrifice means this. That Jesus is the one who turns aside God's wrath, taking away our sin. That through the death of Jesus on the cross, he took on the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. He paid the fine so that our sin could be taken away. In other words, so that we could have peace with God. And so Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And so it's through his wounds and by his wounds, we receive peace with God and we are healed of our sin. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is saying with the rest of the scripture, God's wrath will be satisfied. There will be a punishment for your sin, but God's wrath will be satisfied because God desires none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God will forgive your sin. There will be a pardon from the punishment. I've not forgotten you and I've promised to deliver you. I'm not going to leave you in captivity. I'm going to come and rescue you and set you free from captivity. So, you might be wondering, what about the prospering though? Like the way that we've typically understood it, like what about the prospering? Like, does God not want me to prosper? Well, I would say it like this, not necessarily in the way that we typically understand or imagine prospering from our Western or American point of view. And, and let me just kind of show you what I mean by saying this. Would you say that Jesus prospered? I mean, he's the son of God. Did Jesus live a prosperous life? I think all of us would say yes. He was the son of God. Yet Jesus said he didn't have a place to lay his head. Will we say people like John the Baptist or Paul, our typical heroes of the faith, especially in the New Testament? I mean, Paul wrote a lot of our New Testament. Did Paul, did, did people like John the Baptist, did the other disciples? I, I mean, surely they lived prosperous lives. Well, John the Baptist and Paul had their heads chopped off because they wouldn't stop preaching about Jesus. So Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head and John the Baptist and Paul lost their heads for Christ. And so if we were to say, well, are they not prospering? Do they not live prosperous lives? Well, probably not in the way that we would typically understand that word. First John four says, at least not from a worldly point of view. From a worldly point of view? No, 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 no. They, I guess they didn't prosper. 
Same could be true for believers right now in restricted access countries where it is illegal to follow Jesus, own a Bible or preach about Jesus. Would we say that believers who are being persecuted and thrown in prison and tortured and dying for their faith all over the world, even to this day right now, are they not prospering? Well, I guess not. Not if we interpret it from a worldly point of view. What about believers right now in third world countries who are starving to death? They love Jesus with all of their hearts, yet they are starving to death and dying of hunger. Are they not prospering? You see, the message of the New Testament is more like this. Jesus saying, you have to be willing to give up everything you have to come and follow me. Paul's saying it's been granted to you to suffer for the name of Jesus. The early church in Acts chapter five, praising God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. That's more the message of the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is Ephesians chapter one. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's why if you go to a foreign country where believers are persecuted for their faith in Christ and you meet people who don't have any of the things that we have and you ask them how they're doing, they would tell you just like we might say at church, man, I'm blessed brother. Because they would say, we have Jesus and he's all we need. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You, yeah, you're right, I'm prospering. I'm prospering with every blessing I've got in the heavenly realm through Jesus. I've got all that I need. We might say they're not prospering. They would argue with you and say, no, 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 no. I'm prospering more than you could ever imagine because I've got every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. I've been adopted into the family of God. I've been given the Holy Spirit to worship, serve, and follow. Yeah, I've got all I need in him. So what do we learn from Jeremiah 29? If it's not written to us, what do we learn? Well, we learn that the heart of God is to restore, rebuild, and redeem broken, lost, rebellious people. We learn that our God is our eternal peacemaker. God is an eternal peacemaker. It's better, the message of Jeremiah 29, it's better than you could have ever possibly imagined. God is our eternal peacemaker. Now you might be thinking, that's great, but what about today? Like I've got problems and anxieties and stresses like today, like right now, like I praise God, he's my eternal peacemaker. But what about today? Like what about my problems today? What do I do with those? Well, let's go to Psalm 23 now. And in Psalm 23, you're going to see now why setting is important. Like the place is important to the context. Psalm 23 says this, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. David says, man, that's incredible. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Right? He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This is better and richer than you ever could have possibly imagined. You see, in Hebrew, the green pastures is literally pastures of grass. And if you visited the undeveloped land of the Bible, you would know how unusual this picture is. Like the picture that I'm guessing you have in your mind of the green pastures. If you actually visited this area, you would realize how unusual the picture in your mind 
actually is. Because at best, this land is a rocky, dry set of rolling hills covered with a sparse and tough grass. The water sources are few and often seasonal. Shepherds had to be ready to take their flocks on long migrations from one source of grazing and water to another. I have listened to a guy talking about being on a tour in the Holy Land and someone telling him that you Westerners have turned Psalm 23 into tall flowing grass and think green pastures means you have enough to eat for the rest of your life. If you're like me, you kind of think I've always thought about when I look at Psalm 23, it's kind of like the sound of music, green pastures with a lady running and singing, you know, and twirling and dancing and, and there's long flowing grass everywhere and it's blowing in the wind. It's so tall and rich and green. Here's the green pastures David is writing about in Psalm 23. You're like, Wait, where, where's the green? Like green pastures, right? This is it. These are the green pastures that David is referring to. In fact, if you look real closely, you can see some sheep and a shepherd. This, this, is, this is your green pastures that David is writing about. You see, here's what would happen and still happens to this day. A breeze comes in over the hills and there's moisture that begins to accumulate and little tufts of grass grow under each rock. And so the sheep and the goats move literally from rock to rock to get a little mouthful of grass at each rock along the way. And here's what's wild. By the end of the day, that grass, that little tuft of grass at that rock, it's gone because the heat of the sun saps it and kills it. And so that grass, those little bitty mouthfuls of grass at each rock are only there for a short period of time. And so when David says in Psalm 23, I lack nothing, Here's what David is saying. Well, first of all, what he's not saying is I'm going to plunk you down in some rich green pastures and you'll never have to move or struggle ever again. You can just reach out and get what you want. That's not what David's saying. David is talking about a sheep that isn't worried because he has enough for right now and he has a shepherd who will lead him to enough for the next moment. When David says he makes me lie down in green pastures, when he leads me beside still waters, these are verbs in Hebrew in an imperfect tense, which means this, they are habitual actions. Like they happen over and over and over again. So it's literally more reads like this. He keeps on making me lie down in green pastures. He keeps on leading me beside still waters. In other words, this is not a one-time thing. This is a moment by moment, step by step kind of thing. And if you know the Bible, it probably gives you a picture of the daily manna that God would provide to the nation of Israel in their wandering in the desert. If you remember, God would tell Israel, hey, I'm gonna provide this food for you. It's gonna come down from heaven. And each morning you're gonna go and gather it up and you will have enough for that 
day. But do not gather enough for the next day or the day after that. If you do, it's not going to go well for you. So what, is, what, what do they do? They go and gather enough food for the day and the next day and the day after that. And what happens? It spoils. It's ruined. Because God says, no, 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 no. You are going to walk with me moment by moment, day by day, and I'm going to give you enough for the next five minutes. Well, what, do I, what am I gonna do in the next five minutes? I'll give you what you need in 10 minutes, 10 minutes from now. But for these next five minutes, I've given you what you need. Moment by moment, step by step. It might remind you of Jesus saying, when he taught his disciples to pray, give us today our daily bread. Jesus didn't say, give me a three month supply. Give me the Costco version of daily bread, right? I, I need enough for the next year. Jesus said, no, 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 that's not the way you're gonna pray. You're gonna pray, give me today my daily bread, enough for today. There's a famous rabbi named Rabbi Akiva that taught in the first and second century. And here's what he said about worry. He said, worry is dealing with tomorrow's problems with today's pasture. That's worry. I'm dealing with tomorrow's problems with the pasture that I've been given just for today. And so if that's what worry is, then faith could be said like this. Faith is dealing with today's problems with today's pasture. I'm gonna deal with today's problems with today's pastor. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice and follow me. And so it's almost as if Jesus is saying, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm your good shepherd. And so I'm here with you right now, like in this moment, I'm here with you and I will be there with you tomorrow in that moment. And I will be enough for you in that moment because I am the good shepherd that leads you from rock to rock. And that sounds more like our lives, right? I don't know about you, but my life doesn't look like or sound like the green pastures and the sound of music, right? My guess is, is if you were to examine your life, that picture that I showed you earlier would be a lot more indicative and would tell the story of your life, like rock to rock. Jesus leading me moment by moment, giving me enough for that moment. So watch this. When you follow the good shepherd, here's what you'll find is that there's rest even in the rocks. That's what David's saying in Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. There is rest in the midst of the rocks when I follow the good shepherd. Now here's the thing. Most of us live as if that Psalm 23 piece is based on the Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29 prospering. We live as if Psalm 23 depends on Jeremiah 29. We all do it. We all do it very often. But what I want you to know today is that the Psalm 23 piece does not depend on 
the Jeremiah 29 prospering, at least in the way that we've interpreted it. So check this out. You can have peace even when you aren't prospering. You can have peace. You can know a peace when you follow the good shepherd, even when you aren't prospering. How? When you listen and follow the good shepherd. And you might think, how do I listen to the good shepherd? How do I follow the good shepherd moment by moment? Well, you got to learn to know his voice. That's how you follow the shepherd. See, I learned about the flock of sheep that they can hear their shepherd's voice and go to it in such a way as even when they're mixed up with other sheep, like they belong to another shepherd, they can hear their shepherd's voice and only those sheep will go to their shepherd and the rest will stay. That's how well they know their shepherd's voice. And so if you want to know a peace that doesn't depend on prospering in this life, at least the way we interpret that word typically in our country, if you want to know that kind of peace, you've got to know the shepherd's voice. And the way you get to know the shepherd's voice is by spending time reading his words that he's given to us. Not just taking a verse kind of here and plucking that verse here and reading that one verse here. No, no, no. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, getting to know the voice of the shepherd. And I promise if you do that, you'll find that his word is better than you could have ever possibly imagined. It's better than just taking one verse here and one verse there and trying to figure out what they mean. No, no, no. When you read it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, you'll find that his word is so much better than you could have ever possibly imagined. And you will begin to experience that peace that doesn't depend on the prospering. Here's what I love about Jeremiah 29 and Psalm 23 is that we learn that our God is an eternal peacemaker. And at the same time, he's our daily provider. Isn't that great news? You've got a great dad who loves you. You've got a great father who is your eternal peacemaker and your daily provider. You see his word is so much better than you could have ever possibly imagine. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that maybe through this series, God, you will give us a new passion for your word to read it and to know your voice, to know the voice of the shepherd that we might know and experience this daily moment by moment peace. God, even right now, would you give us by the power of your Holy Spirit, a passion for your word. God, to read it, to devour it. God, to meditate on it day and night. And God, I pray that as we do, you'll help us to understand it. You'll help us to apply it to our lives. God, that your word is living and active and so God, I pray that it would be alive in us even in this moment. And as we go and read it this week, God, it would be alive in us. And we pray that in the name of Jesus.